Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 250,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcasts and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. In this podcast, we consider a controversy in clinical practice. How do we best use evidence in psychotherapeutic practice? Dr. Reginald York, professor of social work at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, gives us some things to consider in answering this question. Dr. York has over 30 years of experience as a social work educator and is the author of over 31 journal articles and four books on human service planning and human service research. Today, Dr. York describes and compares two approaches to using evidence to inform psychotherapeutic practice, evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. What are they? What's the difference? And what's the evidence in support of both? Dr. Denise Bronson, Associate Professor of Social Work at The Ohio State University, spoke with Dr. York by telephone. Hello, I'm Dr. Denise Bronson from The Ohio State University College of Social Work. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Reginald York from the School of Social Work at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, about the controversy in social work between evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence as it pertains to psychotherapy in social work practice. Welcome, Dr. York, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on this important topic with us today. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by asking you to provide an overview of our topic today. Most people in social work know about evidence-based practice and the use of the best available evidence to inform practice decisions. So can you tell us what this podcast is all about and whether there's another viewpoint or perspective that people should know about? We're increasingly becoming familiar with evidence-based practice, and we see people referring to practice sometimes as as evidence-based, and we see program representatives referring to the fact that their programs are evidence-based. We can use evidence to inform social work practice in many ways, but this podcast is about the use of evidence to inform one type of clinical practice, which is psychotherapy. In this regard, there's a controversy that has emerged about how best to use evidence in psychotherapy. The perspective that's the alternative one has been labeled practice-based evidence. So this podcast is about these two perspectives, what each one looks like, how they are similar, and how they are different. And we'll uh, examine some evidence behind each uh, argument. Sounds interesting. 
So let's start with the evidence-based practice. Could you give us a summary of that so we all are on the same page? Okay. I might also add that the folks who are listening can also go back to the podcast you did about evidence-based practice and get a more in-depth view of that. But evidence-based practice is the judicious use of the best available evidence along with client preferences and practitioner expertise in the treatment of human conditions. This means basically that you do not base your practice strictly upon your own expertise and your own experience and the client's preferences, even though these play an important part in evidence-based practice. It means that uh, you become familiar with evidence and sort through it to determine the better from the worst evidence, and you consider this in the treatment of your clients and so forth. Our discussion today, of course, as I said, we're speaking of uh, psychotherapy. So those who are the supporters and proponents of evidence-based practice would say that this means that the treatment model with the best evidence must be used with the client. Would you agree with that? No. no, This is very much, I think, a myth about evidence-based practice in the minds of some people, especially the critics of it. And I've had some of my own students in my social work classes make comments to this effect. But in evidence-based practice, there is no requirement that you must use a given treatment approach based on the client's goals simply because there are more studies that support it than you can find to support other approaches. It means instead that you consider the evidence and you sort through it with a critical eye with an appreciation for the role of science in the pursuit of wisdom. But you must also be competent to use the approach and the approach must be compatible with the client's orientation or preference. This means that, for example, the approach that you end up taking may be the one with the second most evidence or maybe the third most evidence, but it better fits the situation. Okay, that's helpful. So how does a social work practitioner go about finding the evidence and sorting through it with a critical eye? Okay, this is a real challenge, I think, for the typical clinical social worker. I've had lots of discussions with them, done a few studies, Students of mine have done some studies of this and so forth, and it's, it's not an easy thing because a lot of studies that have been done are, have a lot of sophisticated statistics that a typical practitioner will not understand. There are, however, a growing number of Internet databases about evidence that can be helpful, and some fields have developed a practice guidelines based on evidence. Some have identified certain approaches as being evidence-based. I support the assertion that evidence-based practice could be viewed as a process entails the search for evidence, the sorting out of the better from the worst, and the judicious use of that evidence, along with other factors in clinical decisions. You might contrast that, as others have, with the Tal, for example, had a discussion recently talking about, you can look, of course, view it as, as product, which means you use the particular evidence-based practice, or you can see it as process, which means it is a process, and that's what we're talking about here, about evidence-based practice process. And some people would say, well, the practice-based evidence might even be viewed as a third alternative. But for our podcast here, I think I want to talk about the contrast between evidence-based practice as process and practice-based evidence as an alternative. Okay. Once a practitioner finds a website and the evidence, how will they typically know how to sort through it critically? How will they do that? That's a really good question, again, and that's not going to be easy. Well, I want to point out the Campbell Collaboration and the Cochrane Collaboration. These are two major resources. The Cochrane Collaboration was developed many years ago in the medical field, and of course, psychiatry is a part of medicine, so 
you'll find a lot of good stuff on the Cochrane collaboration. The Campbell collaboration is focused more on things like psychotherapy and human services of various kinds, as opposed to, to things that are in medicine that are not a part of that. These are resources that provide systematic reviews of evidence. For example, uh, you may find uh, a systematic review of various approaches to the treatment of depression or PTSD or alcoholism and so forth. These are really good resources uh, to use. But I, I would suggest that we even develop another resource that is a sort of a bridge between these resources and the typical practitioner because even many of the systematic reviews that they might see on the Cochrane or Campbell collaboration may still be a little bit difficult to read. I would frankly like to see some of us in academia or perhaps developing another way to present information about uh, evidence both, I would say, with regard to what the evidence says, but also helping the practitioner understand the level of sophistication of that evidence. So they could see, for example, there's a certain amount of evidence on a certain treatment with regard to a certain condition, but also see, well, this is either really sophisticated research or it's of moderate sophistication or if it's, a, it's evidence but it's a little bit weak. So they could then use that information to help inform their own practice. Okay, so you seem to be suggesting that there are different types or levels of evidence. Could you summarize these types for us? Sure. Of course, I'm only talking here about evidence about outcomes of psychotherapy, not other kinds of articles you might see about it. But if you think about a hierarchy, sometimes, for example, you'll see an article that reports the data from a study of one group of clients where growth on a condition like depression is measured and the client's gain is measured in regard and a certain particular model of treatment was used. And if the gain is found to be statistically significant, this will be, be reported as evidence of the effectiveness of this treatment model in the treatment of, say, depression. Now, this is a simple study. It's a, I described one that would probably be uh, credible. But in the world of evidence-based practice literature, you'll see rather few of these kinds of studies. Instead, you'll see studies where a control group with no treatment is compared to a treated group, which has the advantage of showing that client gain is more likely attributed to the treatment than to something else because they used a, a control group in that approach. Now, these experimental studies are better than ones that are not experimental, but the, what you'll even more likely find in the literature on evidence-based practice are things like meta-analysis. This is an investigation where you decide the scope of your study, determine the criteria to be included, then you look into the databases and you pull out from the databases all the studies that meet these criteria. You then compare them in various ways and you present evidence based on quite a few different studies. So this is a much more sophisticated kind of approach to evidence. At the highest level, I would say the thing that we refer to now as a systematic review would be sitting there at the pinnacle. This is more comprehensive than a meta-analysis because the systematic review also looks into what is referred to by some as the gray literature, that is, things that have not been published. So it goes even beyond the meta-analysis. You know, if we only uh, review one study, if the practitioner only reviews one study of treatment outcomes, we would only have a very limited amount of evidence. And typically when we find numerous studies of certain treatment outcomes, we find that data is not always the same. Sometimes study shows a certain model was effective, and sometimes a study shows it was not. So if you think about it from the standpoint of a practitioner, if you only review one study, how do you know if that study is really representative 
of all the evidence that is there. And let me offer a caution, too, as I'm thinking about sorting through evidence as a practitioner. I would be wary of writers who seem to be what we sometimes call cherry-picking, which is the practice of systematically including in your report only those studies that have the results you favor and systematically excluding from these reports those that offer contrary evidence. Now, this is not the practice of either a meta-analysis or a systematic review because both of these methodologies are transparent about the methods used to review all studies and from designated databases that meet the criteria. So it wouldn't be so easy to be doing engaged in cherry-picking if you're really using a good meta-analysis or a systematic review uh, methodology. Okay, thanks. That's, that's helpful. We haven't yet started to talk about the controversy between evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. So could we move into talking a little bit about how the alternative differs from evidence-based practice? Okay. Let me first, uh, if I can, summarize the steps in evidence-based practice because I want to use this framework to compare the two. First, you collaborate with clients on the goal of treatment. That's the first step. The next step is to review the evidence. And this task, of course, you have the task uh, of articulating an evidence-based research question like uh, which treatment approach seems most effective in the improvement of self-esteem for battered women or which models of therapy seem more effective in the uh, reduction of depression. Next, you sort through the evidence to find guidance. In this regard, you'd be expected to respect the, the scientific sophistication, as I mentioned a minute ago, of the evidence, and you would not be compelled to use only those pieces of evidence that met the highest standards. In fact, uh, you may find little evidence that fits your question. So you use the best available evidence. Next, you decide how the evidence will be used. In this regard, you would consider client preferences and you would consider your own expertise in determining what approach to take. Finally, you collaborate with clients in making a decision on the approach to treatment. If you really, really do it well, you would also evaluate your treatment with the client and use this information to make adjustments. Now, let's look at the, uh, the alternative perspective, known as practice-based evidence. Uh, the controversy comes from the research of individuals who included that there was little evidence in the outcomes of most common treatment behaviors when you employ what's referred to as a bona fide treatment approach, meaning whether you choose the psychodynamic model of therapy rather than cognitive behavioral therapy, makes no difference in outcome, according to this perspective. Instead, the difference in treatment outcome arises from what are referred to as common factors in psychotherapy, things like employment of a collaborative therapeutic relationship, the therapeutic skills of the practitioner, the extent that both the client and the therapist believes in the treatment approach. So the idea is that it is these things that are common to all therapeutic interventions. That that's what contributes to success not the specific things that distinguish one bona fide treatment from another. Well, this sounds to me like you're starting to say that anything goes, that it really doesn't matter which approach to treatment you're going to choose, and that you can do anything and it will work just as well as anything else. Is that what this perspective indicates? No, that's not exactly what the perspective of practice-based evidence says. Instead, it says that it does not matter which of two bona fide methods, models you select. 
And by bona fide, they mean a model that is based on uh, sound psychological theory or principles. For example, cognitive behavioral therapy is based on cognitive theory, something that is widely recognized in the field and uh, has been subjected to many scientific tests. Having a stated theory is not sufficient. It must be sound and widely recognized. And I would add, hopefully supported by evidence. Uh, but the latter is not a requirement to be called bona fide, according to people like uh, Bruce Wampol, who advocate for uh, practice-based evidence. So if I decided to create, for example, a new model, the Reggie York model now I'm going to create, <laughs> and I haven't tested it, and it's not based on any recognized psychological principles or theory, uh, or theory. Uh, if I did that, no matter how charismatic I am, <laughs> my new model would not be considered to be a bona fide treatment. In fact, there are many approaches to treatment that have not been tested and may seem by many to be what's referred to sometimes as bogus approaches to treatment, something that is you might have a charismatic individual who creates and sells the model and people buy it, but it does not seem to be based on sound psychological principles, nor is there any evidence behind it. And this happens a lot. I went to an interesting workshop that Bruce Sire did in Tampa at the research conference in 2010 where he did a presentation on a myriad of focus approaches to treatment that various people were selling over the Internet, some of them social workers, by the way. It was really a long list. And I just wrote down in my notes here something from just one example. One of these was labeled SEP. It was a practitioner in Chicago. If This approach was described as differing from hypnotherapy in that the therapist helps the client to identify energy blockages through healing touch and shows how these blockages can be eliminated. Quote, the client makes the decision to release it and then either breathes it out or has an angel or a spiritual figure take it away, unquote. So this is one example that the Thayer used in talking about uh, bogus approaches. As a matter of fact, he's working on a book on science and psychotherapy, which explores a lot of things like this. He noted, by the way, interesting thing. He said there are a couple of warning signs of what he called bogus approaches. Uh, one was uh, exaggerated claims of amazing results. Another was a process based on mysterious things, like I just mentioned, and a belittlement of other approaches. By the way, Scott Lillenfeld has written a book on science and pseudoscience and therapy from the viewpoint of a psychotherapist, or that is a psychologist, excuse me. Bruce Sire plans to do this from the standpoint of social work, so he's going to do a thing on uh, science and pseudoscience and social work. Now, when I think of the term uh, bogus in the description of these approaches to treatment, I'm not sure just how much I agree with the use of that word because I believe the origin of that word was meaning counterfeit, which would mean it's not effective. And one of the limitations of some of the literature on bogus approaches to treatment have really not looked at evidence about them, but simply looked at the fact they clearly did not seem to be bona fide approaches. And let me add, by the way, it's one final thing about this, that I think professionals have a societal duty and an ethical duty to employ methods with a sound basis for believing they're effective. So I'd say that mysterious explanations like angels will remove your blocked energy are not really consistent with the duty of a professional unless we had some evidence to back that up. That's really helpful, I think, to have you expand on that concept a little bit. I'd like to get back to the topic of common factors that you alluded to earlier and the ones that seem to be the common or the ones that really make the difference in treatment outcomes. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Sure. The one that we're probably most familiar with in social work is the therapeutic relationship, the helping relationship. 
Now, that's something we in social workers have emphasized for nearly a century, something I think we can take some pride in as social workers, and the fact that we recognized this much earlier than psychologists did. This refers, of course, to the ability of the therapist to form a good helping relationship with the client based on empathy, warmth, genuineness, positive regard, and things of that nature. This makes a difference in outcome. Therapists with more of this ability are likely to be more effective. Another common factor is the client. The question is how much hope does the client have that a therapy will work and what approach to treatment better fits with the client's perspectives or preferences or worldview. This is something I would like to see more research on, by the way. A third factor, common factor, is the therapist, and this can take two forms besides mentioned earlier the therapeutic relationship skills one. One of these is the extent that the therapist believes in the approach to treatment that is being used. This is sometimes referred to as legion. That is, if I really believe this works, that's going to make a difference. The second form this takes is the skill of a therapist and the employment of whatever approach that is taken. If I've had more experience or training on the approach, I'm likely to be more effective. So the perspective we're referring to as practice-based evidence says the common factors make a difference in outcome, but the choice between two bona fide treatment approaches does not. So if I have a good relationship with my client, I believe in psychodynamic therapy, I'm skilled in it, and this seems comfortable to the client, the outcome of therapy will be about as good as it can be. It does not matter if I'm using psychodynamic therapy rather than some other therapy or treatment. So given all of that, then the choice between two bona fide treatments doesn't matter as much as the common factors do. And could you say a little bit more about how does this look different from the process of evidence-based practice? Or how does a practice-based evidence therapist differ from an evidence-based practice therapist? Okay, let's look at them step by step. The first step is the same for both perspectives, which is determine the goal of treatment in collaboration with the client. That's not a way they differ. They both are the same. The next step I'd say it's where they differ the most. While the evidence-based therapist will examine the evidence about treatment models and make use of it, the practice-based evidence therapist will consider the methods that suit both the therapist and the client without regard to evidence about distinctions between different bona fide treatments. So the practice-based evidence therapist will have, will, will have become familiar with the research that suggests that distinctions between bona fide treatments are not supported by the research overall so there's little reason to spend time on this body of literature. So both types of practitioners use evidence, but they interpret them differently. The evidence-based practice practitioner believes that the evidence can help to identify better forms of treatment for certain conditions, while the practice-based therapist does not. So that's where they differ the most. Now, the third step in practice-based evidence is to implement the treatment while continually measuring client progress using some kind of systematic feedback from the client, using some kind of scale, for example. Uh, some of the leaders of this perspective have developed a scale for the clients to rate both the treatment session in regard to process and, and outcome. How well did the process seem to go? Scott Miller and uh, Barry Duncan have developed some things on this that are, I think, very useful. So while this step, by the way, of collect, systematically collecting data from clients is clearly in the protocol for the practice-based evidence therapist, it's not by any means inconsistent with what an evidence-based practitioner would do. In fact, I've seen that on the list of some people who advocate for evidence-based practice. But I would say basically that the people who have advocated for practice-based evidence 
have probably given this more emphasis, so I've got to give them a little bit more credit there, but it's not a major difference. Now, the next step in practice-based evidence is to determine what action to take as a result of client feedback. Now, I'm talking here about systematic collective feedback, not the fact that we make judgments as clinicians based on how we're perceiving things, but actually giving the client the opportunity to write down, use a scale or something to actually give you formal feedback. So you and the client, of course, have certain choices if treatment's not going well. You can change treatment, or you can refer the client to someone you think might be more successful. Now, these, this, the idea of, of referring client to whatever is not a, not a way that they differ. I'd say that the practice-based evidence people have probably put a little bit more emphasis on pointing out that there's no one practitioner who's right for every client. So you should recognize that as a practitioner and be prepared to refer the client elsewhere or, of course, change your treatment based on uh, systematic collected data from clients. Uh, of course, there's nothing in these latter steps that significantly are different between the two approaches. I just think that maybe the practice-based evidence writers should have given more emphasis to some of these. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the critical issue between these perspectives seems to be what the evidence tells us about distinctions between different bona fide therapies. Am I correct? And how do you view this evidence? Well, I can say that I don't believe the evidence clearly supports one of these perspectives over the others. It's perplexing to look at it because you read things, and of course, if it looks convincing, then you read something contrary, which also looks convincing. You keep trying to find a basis for doing the comparison. But so let me just start here with, with evidence that relates to both perspectives. For one thing, for many decades, there's been a growing body of literature that suggests that various uh, treatment models are effective. So the question is not, is psychotherapy effective? I think the evidence uh, is pretty clear on that. But it's one treatment model or approach that is one bona fide treatment model or approach more effective than another. That, of course, is the major difference. We can go back to 1936 if we want to in regard to this question because the Rosenzweig, uh, back that far, concluded there was no difference between bona fide treatment in regard to outcome. He was the one who coined the term the dodo bird effect for this conclusion. He was drawing from the book Alice in Wonderland. Remember, there was a dodo bird who, after a rather mysterious game being played by various people that seem to have no rules, concluded, quote, all have won and all must have prizes. So Rosenzweig says, well, all bona fide treatments must have prizes because they don't differ. Now, this line of work has been extended by many individuals, including, I would say, most prominently, Bruce Wemple, who wrote the book The Great Psychotherapy Debate about a decade or so ago, and he lays out the case for the Dodo verdict. He plans to do a revised edition, which I'm looking forward to seeing, because that particular book is a little bit dated. But he, in that book, he reviewed the evidence about the common factors and the evidence about the comparison of different treatment models. So that's the big question. Now, he used a certain protocol for his meta-analysis, and from that protocol, he has consistently concluded several different times in several different meta-analyses the difference made by the choice between modified treatment is about zero. There's a rather extreme position on that. The difference is about, is about zero. And now since that book was published, he's continued to publish articles, also support the propositions of practice-based evidence, the Bird verdict, for example. A number of scholars have debated Wimple in the literature by reviewing meta-analyses that suggest clear differences between treatments 
and by criticizing some of Rand Paul's methodology for engaging in meta-analysis. By, by the way, there is not just one approach to meta-analysis and systematic reviews. You can review two meta-analyses on the same question, and you won't necessarily get the same results, as has been the case with many of the meta-analyses that Rand Paul has done of the same thing that some others have done and brought rather different conclusions. Well, as people are doing this and they're making choices in what type of meta-analysis to use, can you review for us a little bit what some of those choices were for Wampold as he was conducting his meta-analyses? Yes. I think, and I'll focus on some of the ones that, that I think have been most uh, criticized. One is that Wampold included studies that compared two variations of the same general treatment model. And when the result of the comparison of two different variations of the general model failed to show that one was superior, his methodology would put this in the bucket that included evidence in support of the dodo bird. But some have said this procedure fails to reveal that there are certain types of therapies that are better than other general types of therapies. I believe there's legitimacy to that particular complaint. There are a certain number of variations, for example, of cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral therapy and maybe we should only be comparing one of the general types to another rather than to something like psychodynamic therapy, which is very different, rather than throwing all the studies that fail to show a difference into the same bucket. Another criticism of Wayne Paul is that he excluded some studies because they failed his criterion for being a bona fide treatment. But others would have said some of those, one might argue, should have been considered bona fide therapy. And it's been pointed out that Wampol's reviews fail to address all of the international criteria for conducting a systematic review. So his methodology, I think, is clearly limited, and it does seem to be that when he abuses his methodology, it always seems to come to the same conclusion. So a critical ingredient in his meta-analysis is what he considers to be a bona fide therapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what does he consider to be a bona fide therapy, and why is this an important consideration in his work? Certainly. Wampol's definition is that it's primarily an interpersonal treatment that's based on psychological principles and involves a trained therapist and a client who has a mental disorder or a problem with complaint, and it's intended by the therapist to be remedial to the client problem, and it's adapted or individualized for the particular client, for their particular issue. When you look at the term bona fide, there are several things. If you look at several different things that make something bona fide according to Wemple, one is that it's offered by a qualified therapist. It entails face-to-face interaction. It's a treatment that's amenable to therapy. And the latter one is the most critical one for our discussion. That is, the approach used as active ingredients supported by psychological principles. So the active ingredient criterion is a major point of contention between Wampol's evidence and the criticism of it. Wampol would not include, as a bona fide treatment, a rather non-directive or supportive form of counseling. That's based just on using the helping relationship and providing a sympathetic ear and so forth, but which lacks specific ingredients like you might find in behavioral therapy, for example, where there are certain techniques you use, or cognitive behavioral therapy where you focus on certain kinds of things and techniques, and, and psychodynamic therapy would use a rather different kind of approach to treatment. Those would be called ones with active ingredients. Each of these, of course, have those ways of looking at things, ways of going about uh, treating the point. 
And some of the studies left out of Wampol's meta-analysis where I noted one person criticized him for losing, excluding a study that described problem-solving therapy. And some said, well, that should be considered to be one with active ingredients. So to summarize this, a bonafide therapy is a face-to-face interaction between a qualified therapist and a client with an amenable problem where a method of treatment with active ingredients is important. So one of the controversies then is whether a given study is comparing bonafide treatments. And if a comparison of two treatments reveals differences in effectiveness, this would be evidence against the dodo bird effect or dodo bird verdict, I guess it was called. But if the study is not considered one that compared bona fide therapies, it would be excluded from Wampold's meta-analysis, and this would help the dodo bird to stay alive. Is that right? Uh, Yes, that's (laughs) a way to put it, yes. Okay. So what are some of the other arguments between Wampold and his critics? Another one is the statistical methodology. That's something a little sophisticated to talk about over this podcast, but the, the one that he uses for computing the final statistical verdict about differences in outcomes. Wemple has used a test of heterogeneity, and I've suggested that computing mean effect size is more appropriate, but that's far too complex to get into here, and I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that question anyway. Okay. And are there any other arguments or controversies around this? Okay, there's the argument that the study should not be included in the meta-analysis that serves the purpose of comparing treatments if neither treatment was found to be effective, and Wampol did include those. Another argument is that he used a number of what are referred to as pre-clinical studies where, for example, students were used in the study as opposed to a typical client population in a typical clinical setting. Now, I'd add another one, by the way, which is Wampol has argued that the specific ingredients of bona fide treatments does not affect outcomes. In other words, if you use a bona fide treatment, you believe in, and the client believes in, and you're skilled in it, and so forth, it doesn't matter which one you employ. I would say this extreme emphasis on the common factors is not supported by research on self-help therapy, what some refer to as bibliotherapy, where clients are simply given something like a workbook to go through as uh, their approach to treatment. And so you don't have interaction with the therapist, or if you do have, it's really, really minimal. So, And the increasing array of research on methods that use self-help a book with little or no interaction with the therapist suggests that this approach is effective. Now, the, now the outcomes of that are, are the outcomes seem to be modest, but they do seem to be effective and statistically significantly effective. So, if if there is no relationship going on, then some of the common factors would suggest that it must be the specific ingredient. So, I, I would add that one to the to some discussion. So, when all is said and done, what do you make of these criticisms of Wampold's work? Well, I would say that some of the criticisms are legitimate. I would also say I've been disappointed that some of the people who have criticized his work have failed to provide an alternative, which does it the right way. However, there's one exception, an article, at least one, I mean, there may be others, but I'm familiar with one by Tolan, who specifically looked at some of the things that have been criticisms of Wampol's work and made it better in that one. Can you summarize some of Tolan's work? Yes. This was a study in the Clinical Psychological Review 2010. The title was, Is Cognitive Therapy More Effective Than Other Therapies? And he compared cognitive behavioral therapy with another bona fide treatment approach. This was a meta-analysis. 
his analysis did not include studies where two variations of cognitive behavioral therapy were being compared. So he was taking that into consideration. He was not including it if you were just comparing two variations. Then. Only when you compare CBT to something distinctively different like psychodynamic therapy. And what he found was that CBT was more effective than psychodynamic, but not more effective than some of the other models. But some of the other ones that were in his study, there are just not enough of them. The bulk of the one in his particular meta-analysis just compared cognitive behavioral therapy with psychodynamic. And he did find that cognitive behavioral therapy was superior. So you might say this was a limited reputation of the Dodo Bird verdict. Cognitive behavioral therapy was superior, but not by a great amount. It was statistically significantly superior. And I would say the amount of superiority was clinically noteworthy. So I'd say this might be a reputation of the verdict, but not a really strong one. Now, this is by no means the only reputation, a reputation, that is to say, of this verdict. For example, this one example, Shapiro and Shapiro in 1982 reviewed 143 studies and found that behavioral treatments were superior to dynamic ones. To give another example, Sam does 2000, analyzed 90 studies and found that having a behavioral orientation to the approach to therapy predicted the outcome of treatment as evidence of effect size. And there are others. Now, Wample has criticized all of these meta-analyses that reveal differences between treatment approaches, and it's pointed out in some cases that when you control for confounding variables these studies, the differences between treatment outcomes disappear. Now, I believe he's made some noteworthy assertions in this argument, but I believe his approach to this case seems to be a little bit in favor of the Dodenberg verdict. I say that because I think some of his points in criticism are a little sticky. By that, I mean pointing out what I would call imperfections rather than real flaws. It seems to me that the biggest weakness of Wampol's work is his failure to compare types of treatment. I'd rather throw in all studies that fail to show superiority of one method over another in the same bucket with support for the other. And the best evidence against the other bird, I think, is the review that looks at major types of treatment. I think that's the body of evidence that is relevant to clinical practice, and it's the body of evidence that practice-based evidence advocates us to do. And I would say, by the way, right now, I just think that we're overdue for a systematic review of this question about the Dodo Bird verdict. So after all this discussion, where does this leave us, and what do you think should be the takeaway message that our listeners have after this conversation? Okay. First, I would say that both the evidence-based practice and the practice-based evidence perspective agree that psychotherapists should develop collaborative relationships with clients and make decisions based on practitioner expertise and client preference. Also, both perspectives uh, agree that psychotherapists should employ bona fide treatments, not bogus methods that lack either tested psychological principles nor evidence. They both agree that evidence should be considered, but they differ on what the evidence tells us about what is most important in determining client outcomes. The evidence-based practice viewpoint suggests that evidence about the effect of different methods of treatment upon specific treatment behaviors should provide critical guidance for clinical decisions. The practice-based evidence perspective, on the other hand, suggests that we should employ a bona fide treatment but need not pay critical attention to evidence about which ones work better with specific goals because the evidence suggests that bona fide treatments do not differ in, in effect. In this perspective, the, the common factors in therapy determine outcome as like the ones we've been mentioning. 
Next, I would say I believe there is evidence to support both perspectives regarding the effect of treatment. So the jury is still out, in my mind, on this question in general. It is clear to me, however, that the common factors make a difference, and I believe there is some modest evidence that certain treatments do work better than others in certain situations. The key lesson, I think, for the psychotherapist is that he or she should be sure to attend the common factors and become trained in methods with evidence behind them, not necessarily because we know for sure that these methods will work better than others, but because the effective therapist will employ methods with logical structure, which I think is a key ingredient and outcome. And they are likely to become believers in methods with evidence behind them, and believing in what you're doing itself contribute to success. I would say also that regardless of the perspective you favor, you should systematically collect data on client outcomes and use it for treatment decisions. And I believe this may be the best I can do right now in finding consensus between the two perspectives. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I certainly have learned a lot from listening to your thoughts on all of this. So I'd really like to thank you, Dr. York, for sharing your thoughts and insightful comments on, on this issue for social work. I'm sure our listeners have gained a better perspective on this controversy and its implications for social work practice, and I thank you very much for taking time to do this. Well, thank you for asking me. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Dr. Reginald York discuss evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.